Scarlatti Sonata in G Major, Longo 487, as performed there by Stephen de Groot. The time has just gone 8pm and you're tuned to Fine Music Radio. A very warm welcome from me, Adrian Fuchs, your host for tonight's edition of Great Interpreters, a tribute to the late South African pianist Stephen de Groot. Stephen de Groot was born on the 12th of January 1953 in Johannesburg, the youngest son of two highly accomplished violinists, Belgian-born Pierre de Groot and his wife Joyce Mace, who hailed from the United Kingdom. To say that music ran in de Groot's blood would be an understatement. For three generations, almost every member of the de Groot family had been a professional musician. Here is Pierre and Stephen de Groot in an interview recorded in 1977, shortly before his Carnegie Hall debut. I think he was about two. Like all babies interested in the piano, he went there and he bumped it with his fist. And uh, the development of technique consists in replacing the fist by a finger. And then you put two fingers together and you discover what sounds nice and what hurts. And so on and so on. But he started entirely by himself and uh, never have had a teacher before the age of six, if I remember well. I grew up in a house where music was practiced, you know, from morning till night. I particularly remember my father early in the morning. He always got up at about six and practiced before he went over to town to rehearse with the orchestra. And I'd hear him practicing the Mendelssohn concerto and the Bruch concerto and so on. Basically, I just heard the piano, found the piano and got up and played the piano on my knees in those days. In our family, we had an ideal combination. My brother Oliver, who plays clarinet, played viola as well, so we could have a piano quintet with my father playing first violin, stepmother playing second violin. And pretty soon we started playing concerts as a family in South Africa. And we did it for fun, because my father managed to create it in such a way that it was fun. In fact, I never pushed the practice, neither with him or with the other. I would tell them that uh, I wanted to hear a piano, a clarinet, and a cello from four to five. That was practice, you see. But it's not the same thing to bring up a child who is musical and find thing by himself, or bring up a child who is, uh, shall we say, condemned to play the piano. Because there are some, many. But one is worried, because it's not sufficient to go out in the world with diplomas, and, and uh, you can't put a plate on your door saying, Stephen de Groot, virtuoso pianist or something like that. It doesn't happen, like a dentist or a doctor. And that is one of the troubles with having musicians in the family. You have no idea when they are going to have a break. I mean, the day before the competition, he was a poor student. Truly. Stephen's musical development was prodigious, as was that of his other siblings, Andre, Oliver and Philip, all of whom would become noted musicians. In an interview with Fern Ekman in 1977, de Groot recalled how at the age of four he would walk over to the piano after his older brother Philip had finished his practicing and play by ear the pieces that he had been practicing. And so I was taught piano, he noted, and Philip put on the cello. He was a wonderful cellist. I am convinced inside that the reason I grew up with an inclination to play music was that I heard it around me all the time 
in such a natural way that people didn't tell me there was something special there that I should pay close attention to if I ever wanted to understand it. To me, music was rather like brushing my teeth, you know, it was just something I did every day. De Groot possessed perfect pitch, which allowed him to play and transpose music by ear, and he showed an extraordinary memory, musical and otherwise. By the age of 10, he was playing Mozart concertos from memory. Marianne Martens, a close family friend, recalled how as a young boy he would visit their home while the De Groot family quartet was practicing. When asked what they were playing, Stephen would go and sit in front of the piano and play all four parts of whatever quartet it was that they were practicing. In his adult years, De Groot, who became an amateur pilot, would memorize entire flight schedules, and he was able to recall not only the flight times, but also the flight numbers and points of departure from memory. He was also known for his ability to complete the Rubik's Cube in under a minute, often while still holding a conversation. As with most child prodigies, De Groot was very much a loner and showed tremendous maturity from an early age. Even as a child, he exhibited a formal manner of speech, which Marianne McLean, another close family friend, believed contributed to his seemingly aloof personality. She recalled that de Groot did not socialize easily and was at his most comfortable playing the piano. His genius, she noted, seemed to set him apart and at times it created a distance which I suspect left him in a world of his own and lonely at times. Tragedy struck in 1960 when Joyce de Groot succumbed to breast cancer. The loss of his mother when Stephen was a mere seven years old must have contributed to his sense of isolation as a child and no doubt also contributed to his emotional maturity. Following Joyce's passing, de Groot's father moved the family to Stellenbosch, where he had accepted a teaching position at the Conservatorium at the University of Stellenbosch. Shortly thereafter, Pierre remarried. His second wife, Hermina Verster, was also a violinist. The couple settled in Onderpapagaiberg in Stellenbosch, and the marriage resulted in two further children, a daughter Tessa and a son Pierre. Throughout his life, Pierre de Groot remained a mentor and musical inspiration to Stephen, who later stated, my first teachers were not as important influences in my life as my father, who remained the big influence. Yet, when asked whether he had any secrets to his success, de Groot, in an interview with Louis Heinemann in 1982, stated, I am naturally blessed. I have strong hands, and in the same way that children learn their mother tongue, I learned from an early age to communicate through music. But the single most important thing is that I always had the right teachers. Ik heb mijn eerste geld verdiend door om met iemand anders te spelen. Maar mensen leren niet wat vinden en dan schilderen. Als jij een wereldberoemde schilder bent, dat gebeurt niet zo niet. Jij leert eerst om klavier te spelen, dan leer jij om zo met andere mensen te spelen. Dan misschien als je bij gelukkig bent, dan kan je wiki geld daarmee verdienen. En met daarin kennis kan jij ook andere soorten muziek verstaan en zoals ons vroeger gezegd. Can you understand what is it to find? What is the basis of this? And that's why I think this is the most thing that a man can study and do. The Groot's teachers included Lamar Krausen, Eduardo Del Pueo, Rudolf Serkin, Mitislav Hortsovsky, and Seymour Lipkin. The Groot considered Krausen one of the leading pianists and chamber musicians of his generation who taught many of South Africa's greatest pianists, his first important teacher. He started studying with Krausen in 1964 at the age of 11, and would later state, Krausen was someone who really knew how to communicate, 
both on the piano and verbally. He understood teaching, and he emphasized sound production over fast fingers. I had no specific musical tastes, though my teacher's taste ran strongly to Haydn and Schubert. He was a strict classicist, which I think is important. Suzanne Schwittering recalled that Krausen once said, I can't teach Stephen anything. He knows everything. He does it before I can say it to him. All I can do with Stevie is to listen. Here is Lamar Krausen talking about little Stevie, as he was fondly known. You know, I've said many times that um, one's pupils actually are like one's children. In fact, that is one's immortality, I suppose, as a, as a teacher. And in the case, particular case of Stephen, I really feel like I've lost a son. In 1970, at age 16, De Groot travelled to Brussels, where he continued his studies with Eduardo Dal Pueo at the Royal Music Conservatory in Brussels, where he graduated the following year with a first prize and the highest distinction. Whereas Krausen taught De Groot about sound production and musical principles, Dal Pueo taught him, according to De Groot's own reckoning, everything that he knew about technique. Dal Pueo was probably the most remarkable teacher I've ever met, De Groot recalled, the most stunning pianist I've ever heard. He could pinpoint a technical problem with such accuracy that the student could solve more problems than he had imagined possible. He was an amazing teacher. Between 1972 and 1975, De Groot studied at the Curtis Institute of Music under the guidance of Rudolf Serkin, Mieczysław Horzowski and Seymour Lipkin. Despite the fact that De Groot had great respect for Serkin, his principal teacher during his time at Curtis, their relationship was strained and de Groot often found himself at odds with Serkin's musical views. His difficult relationship with Serkin left him disillusioned about pursuing further studies. I have my own point of view, he mentioned to Donald Henehan in a 1977 New York Times interview, and I don't try to imitate any teacher. Right now, I have no teacher at all, and I don't plan to have one. I want to work things out for myself and develop my own ideas. Since his first competition at the age of five, De Groot was, in his own words, always winning little silver cups and Eisteddfords and competitions in South Africa, in addition to dinky little toys and gold stars on the corners of my music pages. In 1971, he won the SA Music Rights Organization Award and then later that same year achieved second place in the International Beethoven Competition in Brussels. His success led to concert appearances in the US, Canada, Belgium, Holland and France. In 1975, De Groot entered the Leeds International Piano Competition, but did not progress further than the first round. Charles Rosen, 
one of the adjudicators would later write. I was taken aback when a remarkable young South African pupil of Sirkin, Stephen de Groot, was voted out at the end of the first round. After the first round results were announced, I apologized to him for the foolishness of the jury and assured him that those who voted for him had done so with passion. Rosen called de Groot's exit from the competition a lamentable misjudgment and furthermore noted, De Groot was a pianist that one either liked or disliked with great conviction on a first hearing, exactly the kind of pianist who should be listened to again. He was an intelligent and exciting pianist with a style not to everybody's taste.
The first movement from Beethoven's famous Waldstein Sonata, the Piano Sonata No. 21 in C major, Op. 53. And the pianist there, of course, Stephen de Groot, and that recording from 1979. De Groot's disappointing performance at the Leeds competition left him depressed and at the verge of giving up his aspirations for a career in music. But the following year he managed to summon up his courage and confidence yet again and entered the 1976 Edgar Levin Foundation International Competition for Violinists and Pianists. Although the jury felt that each of the seven finalists, including the Gruet and pianist Mitsuko Yuchida, had something, though no single contestant had everything, and so no winner was selected, each of the finalists received a cash prize of $1,000 and a three-year contract for solo and concerto performances across the U.S. In May 1977, the 24-year-old de Groot participated in the renowned Young Concert Artists Auditions in New York, where, from amongst 270 young musicians from around the globe, he was selected as the winner. His prize included artist membership on the roster of Young Concert Artists, management services by Young Concert Artists, and professional engagements throughout the U.S., including his New York concert debut, a solo recital in the Kaufman Concert Hall located at the 92nd Street Y. Later that same year, 1977, de Groot was selected from amongst 197 entrants to be one of the 76 participants in the 5th Van Cliven International Piano Competition, named after America's favorite piano son. The Van Cliven, held every four years in Fort Worth, Texas, is widely regarded as the world's most prestigious piano competition. For the 1977 competition, the grand prize, described by one of the jury members as a career, included amongst other things $10,000 in prize money, a Carnegie Hall debut, a two-year-long concert tour through the U.S., concert appearances in the U.K. and Europe, and the possibility of a recording contract with RCA Victor. From the outset, de Groot stood out from his fellow competitors, not least because of his choice of repertoire, which according to Olin Chisholm, tended to music of unquestionable artistic worth, rather than the dreary and obvious procession of display pieces favoured by so many contestants. In other words, Haydn, Mozart, Schubert and Prokofiev, as opposed to Liszt, Rachmaninoff and Skriabin. De Groot's style of pianism too stood in stark contrast to that of Alexander Toradze, who, together with De Groot, proved to be an early frontrunner, an audience favourite and De Groot's biggest competition. As Alberto Ginistera, one of the jury members, noted, the two frontrunners were as different as Apollo and Dionysus. According to Joseph Horowitz, Toradze seemed as forward as de Groot seemed withdrawn. At the piano, too, de Groot and Toradze were a study in contrasts. De Groot was composed. From the moment he sat down to play, however, Toradze was an adrenaline machine, eyes clamped, jaw clenched. Interpretively, de Groot's performance ranged within the normal parameters. Everything Toradze touched, however, sounded different. Of de Groot's performance in the first round, Leonard Eureka reported... He turned everyone upside down again with a grand, old-fashioned, heroic reading of the Chopin C-sharp minor scherzo, one filled with marvellous colours and delicate nuance. Let us now to de Groot playing the scherzo number no. 3 in C-sharp minor, Opus 39 by Chopin, recorded live during the preliminary round of the 1977 
Van Cliven Piano Competition.
The Scherzo No. 3 in C-sharp minor, Opus 39 by Frédéric Chopin, recorded live there at the preliminary round of the 5th Van Cliven competition in 1977 in Fort Worth, Texas. And of course, the pianist was Stephen de Groot. De Groot's performances in the first and second rounds secured him a place in the semi-finals, where Leonard Eureka referred to his elegant European kind of training and called his playing warm, personal, and as aristocratic as anything heard here in years. His Chopin selection, Eureka noted, the Polonaise Fantasie Opus 61, was an intimate reminder of the salons of another time, candles, moonlit terraces, and beautiful people. And his performance of the Schumann Quintet with the Tokyo String Quartet took you out of your seat with its surging energy and passion. I can't remember, noted Eureka, when I've heard such marvellously controlled sounds at the keyboard put to poetic as well as bravura use. Everything the Groot touch turned to gold, as if it were the only way possible for the music to sound. We have a conclusion of the jury. We will have seven finalists in our competition. I will read the names in order of appearance. Alexander Mendoyans, please come forward. Christian Blackshaw. Michel D'Alberto. Alexander Torazzi. Ian Hobson. Jeffrey Swan. And Stephen DeGroote. Eventually, seven instead of the usual number of six finalists were chosen, with De Groot amongst them. The pressure is continuous, and it's really enormous, he mentioned to Ashley Halsey. It's not like a tennis match. You don't just add up the points. You never feel good, and it's unwise to have a subjective judgment of how you've done. The pressure becomes less as you get near the end, because you know it's only seven contestants, and you're kind of special. In a later interview, De Groot described his feelings prior to the final round of the competition. I wasn't expecting anything, you know. I had a lot of experience in competitions. You try not to think about the results. You try only to think about what you do, and in fact, I never even looked at the list of concerts that the first prize winner will get. Until, perhaps until the day before the finals. I started thinking, well, there are only seven of us left. And in an interview with Daniel Webster, De Groot stated, I felt I was playing well and could win it. I had been in other competitions, and I felt ready to accept winning or losing. Well, I could, I could, yeah, I could think, okay, I could good spell, and to I could do it on the second round, to I think, well, that like as if I from my own, and I can go and to come back to the finals, and to I think, maybe I could chance. For the final round. De Groot had chosen Mozart's Piano Concerto in A Major, K488, and Prokofiev's Third Piano Concerto, again a rather unusual choice, with contestants typically going for tried and tested Warhol's concertos by Tchaikovsky or Rachmaninoff. According to Leonard Eureka, De Groot came out with a fabulous reading of the Mozart Concerto, one steeped in style and full of love, and went on to glory with the Prokofiev Third. And... Though his performance was not as forceful as Soviet pianist Alexander Toradze's, musically it ran circles around the Russian, Eureka noted, 
and there was nothing to be ashamed about technically. In fact, it was a more satisfying performance, full of color and poetry the Russian had missed. Second prize, awarded by the Fuller Foundation, goes to Mr. Alexander Toradze. Grand prize goes to Stephen DeGroote. And so it was that the 24-year-old De Groot from Johannesburg, South Africa, had achieved what very nearly everyone had thought impossible, winning not only the grand prize, but also all the category prizes, to this day the only winner in the history of the Van Cliven competition to have done so. I worked hard for this, he noted. I left home at 16 and really struggled. I've done my share of suffering. Is this your first visit to the United States? No. Um, I've, I've lived here for almost five years. Philadelphia. I wasn't expecting anything, you know. I had had a lot of experience in competitions. You you try not to think about the result. You try only to think about what you do. And in, in fact, I never even looked at the list of concerts that the first prize winner would get until about the day before the finals. And I started thinking, well, there are only seven of us left. Could you give us some idea of which concertos you have in your repertoire? Well, there's a Mozart concerto in A major. <laughs> I never believed that I would not do something in music. But you can't decide what to do until you're given that opportunity, really, because uh, so many people study music for different motivations, and I think it's hard to decide what to do when that thing to do is not really presented to you yet. I'd like to play you now an extract from a live performance of the Brahms Second Piano Concerto given by De Groot and the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra conducted by David de Villiers in the Cape Town City Hall in 1989. Of De Groot's playing of this work, Kunrat Visser wrote, De Groot is scrupulous in his observance of every dynamic marking and expressive nuance. His performance does not run as high on adrenaline as that of some of his peers. Instead, his broad magisterial account combines poetic feeling and intellectual strength. Long after the dazzle of his perfectly executed trolls, glittering arpeggios and breathless octave passages has faded, one is left with a feeling of repose and well-being.
an extract there from the first movement of Brahms's Piano Concerto No. 2 in B-flat major, Opus 83, with, of course, Stephen de Groot at the piano and David de Villiers conducting the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra in that live recording from 1989. Shortly after his triumph at the Van Kleiben, a frenzy erupted in musical circles following an article by respected music critic John Ardoin, published in the New York Times on the 9th of October 1977, in which he summed up his opinion of de Groot as follows. An example of the classic contest winner, a superb and fluid mechanism coupled with a common denominator approach to music which is solid but never revelatory and which gives offence to no one except those expecting an immense personality, one to match the prize. More to the point, de Groot is no Alexander Toratze. It could well be that de Groot was a compromise amongst the jury, which, according to one of its members, was split exactly in two over Toradze. Half of them love him, half of them can't stand his playing. Ardoin's accusation that de Groot was a compromise by a jury split in their admiration of Toradze was denied in the media by jury member Leon Fleischer, who called Ardoin's accusation a misstatement of fact, and noted, The fact is that Stephen de Groot was chosen as winner of the first prize on the first ballot, cast by secret vote, by 12 of the 13 judges. How this can be interpreted as a jury being in considerable disagreement is quite beyond me. When Donald Henehan of the New York Times asked de Groot about the controversy surrounding his win, de Groot simply responded, Look, a lot of things have been written in my favor, so I can't object if somebody down there thinks it was a scandal that I won. It's foolish to believe everybody would be happy at me winning. Nevertheless, the skepticism that resulted from Ardoin's article plagued de Groot for the rest of his career, and according to Joseph Horowitz, de Groot felt that Ardoin's article had sealed his fate. In the months that followed, de Groot found himself in the unenviable position of having achieved instant fame, yet in no small part due to the controversy surrounding his win, having to prove himself a worthy winner at every subsequent performance, his artistry and pianism being scrutinized at every opportunity. His schedule of appearances was manic and exhausting. In the two months following the Van Cliven and prior to his Carnegie Hall debut, he played 35 concerts in two months. Yet, despite his strenuous schedule and the scrutiny of the press and critics, the majority of de Groot's concert appearances during this time received overwhelmingly positive press. Critics frequently noted his technical mastery, interpretive skill, beauty of sound, and the varied palette of tonal colors that he managed to draw from his instrument. One critic in particular, Daniel Kariaga, noted, The 24-year-old pianist from South Africa displayed the impressive technical apparatus, ingrained musical discernment, and perfect taste which won him his awards. If, as one reliable report has it, de Groot may have been a compromise choice for first place, that choice is certainly defensible. What he lacks at this stage and it may be a permanent lack, there being in the world of music no guarantees that quality improves with time, is any particular sense of individuality. This supposed lack of pianistic individuality, despite all the musical presence his performances conveyed, was iterated by several critics. Yet, as Patrick Taggart pointed out, although de Groot didn't display any particular or staggering profundity in musical thought, few pianists his age do, what matters is that he plays so assuredly, with such professionalism and authority, that at age 24 he needn't worry about a career. He's already a prime contender. 
Critic Justin Buston, on the other hand, viewed de Groot as one of those unabashedly romantic performers who plays with his heart as much as with his mind. There are plenty of youthful piano virtuosos around today who can dazzle you with their note-perfect, almost machine-like precision, but it's a joy to hear one who combines technical proficiency with bounding emotion. Following his London orchestral debut with the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Kirill Kondrashin in 1979, Edward Greenfield wrote in The Guardian that de Groot triumphantly vindicated the Texas jury's choice in one of the most breathtakingly beautiful performances of a Chopin concerto I have heard in years. What was magnetically compelling, wrote Greenfield, and marked de Groot out as a poet-pianist of the first order, was his unfailing lyricism, coupled as it was with a feeling for Robato, which was never self-conscious, but brimmed with the genuine Chopin heartache. Let's listen now to an extract from the first movement of Chopin's Piano Concerto No. 1 in E minor, Opus 11, as performed by Stephen de Groot, with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra conducted by Erich Bergel in this 1986 recording. Please note that the slight distortion which you'll hear in certain passages was as a result of the original recording levels.
extract there from the first movement of Chopin's Piano Concerto No. 1 in E minor, Opus 11, as played by Stephen de Groot. And the conductor there was Erich Bergel leading the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra in that live performance from the 7th of August 1986 in the Cape Town City Hall. Of course, I'm really thrilled about Carnegie Hall. That place is a legend. It just is. It's a very wide hall, and it's a very deep stage and it just gives us huge impression of space and, and importance and uh, my father will be there and a lot of my friends will be there it's just going to be a wonderful evening well let's put it this way it's not just another concert but for me it's another performance but if I treated it differently to any other performance I'd be making a mistake as far as the other performances are concerned but it'll be a very special feeling to walk out and see the piano on the stage and people in I don't I really don't imagine I can't imagine what it'll look like feel like
On the evening of 12th of December 1977, De Groot made his much-anticipated Carnegie Hall debut. The audience included a veritable who's who of the musical world, including pianists George Boulet, Lily Krauss, Van Klaiben himself, and even Alexander Toradze, the Russian pianist who many felt should have won the Van Klaiben competition. Present that evening, too, was a plethora of cameramen and television crews. With this nuisance on top of the regular pressures of a debut recital and most of the important musical personalities and critics of the area in the hall, it's little wonder that not much magic happened in this performance, reported Leonard Eureka, following de Groot's concert. De Groot was under tremendous strain from the beginning, and not much of the program reflected the outgoing romantic nature heard in Fort Worth during the contest, he noted. Another critic, Harriet Johnson, uttered a similar sentiment. The evening became a true gala, she wrote, except perhaps for the serious 24-year-old who was the cause of it all. And though de Groot reinforced in many ways the fine impression he made here in New York last month in his Kaufman Concert Hall performance, the full impact of his personality could not be determined from this recital. Well, that, that, that was op the end of a reek van 35 concerten wat ik in twee maanden moest speel. En ek was baie, baie moe en baie, baie siek. Ek het een, op die dag het ek een verskrikkelijke verkouwe gehad. En ek, dit was nie vir my baie lekker nie. Mm-hmm. Dit was baie belangrik en ek moest mooi speel en ek het ook die beindruk gekry dat ek moest my goed voordoen en alles. Maar ek was eigenlijk so siek dat ek nie baie daarvan eigenlijk kon hou nie. Ek het sier het in more than anything else, noted the critic Harold C. Schoenberg, it probably was the program that kept Stephen de Groot from making his full impact in Carnegie Hall last night. Indeed, the first half of the concert was rather dull. In the second half of the program, the music was of better quality, though here again Mr. de Groot was immature in his approach. Mr. de Groot is not the first pianist who has crucified himself trying to play what he thinks should be played, rather than music with which he has a natural affinity. Let's reserve judgment. The next time around, in a program more suited to his particular strengths, Mr. De Groot may yet surprise us all. De Groot, however, justified his program choice as follows. I'm not going to play the Liszt opera paraphrases, and I'm not going to play the Chopin funeral march sonata. Surely, at Carnegie Hall, which is perhaps the most famous concert hall in the world, Surely there you can play an intellectual program. But no, not if you're the Van Klyben winner. You know, when you're a nobody, it's easy to be yourself. When you're a nobody, like I was before the Van Klyben, you play whatever you like and people listen. But if you're the Klyben winner, people listen with certain hopes and expectations. Oh, he won the Klyben. That means he'll probably sound something like this. Following his success at the Van Klyben competition, De Groot was quickly engaged by most of America's leading orchestras and performed regularly as a recitalist and chamber musician in the US, Europe, and also every so often in South Africa. His life became a mad dash from one concert hall to the next. Every concert is new, he said to Anne Hyman in an interview, but every hotel seems like the one I left the night before. The day I won this damn thing, De Groot later commented referring to the Van Klyben competition, one of the jurors came up to me and said, Watch it, you'll burn out. You'll see. And there I was. I had the silver cup and this gold medal and this gold watch and this check and two years of concerts lined up and I thought, I can handle this. What's he talking about? But he was right. 
I'm four years older and I don't feel four years older at all. I haven't lived. I don't belong anywhere. Realizing the toll that his performance schedule was taking, De Groot gradually started to reduce his concert appearances. I feel that despite the Kleiben competition, he noted, I've kept a firm grip on my desire to evolve musically throughout my life. I know that you can have a glittery career and be doing absolutely nothing. For about two years after the Kleiben, I wasn't playing well, and then I began playing fewer concerts and it got better. I'm a lot happier now. Over the course of the following years, De Groot divided his time between concerts and teaching. He travelled to Finland in 1979 to record an album for Finlandia Records. There, on a trip to northern Finland, he was said to have spoken about having an eerie premonition of his not living a long life. In 1981, he joined the music faculty of Arizona State University, and in an interview with Joseph Horowitz, he opened up about the perils and pitfalls of an otherwise glamorous career as a pianist. If I want to teach piano, I'll teach piano, he said. I'm the one in control of my life, nobody else. I'll have a library to go to, and paths to walk on, and colleagues to whom I'll have something more interesting to say than, hey, I've got a plane to catch. I'll have friends. Let me tell you about friends. Friends are people who, even if you don't see them for two years, are still your friends. I could count the number of friends I have on the fingers of one mutilated hand. The friends I used to have, I lost and friends aren't the worst thing you can lose. I think I'm incapable of falling in love now. As an adult, de Groot maintained what others have called an aloofness. According to Buddy Bray, a former pupil of his, de Groot created a distance between himself and the world, and he was intensely private. You had to go to him, he didn't come to you, Bray noted. John Giordano remembers de Groot as a rather timid, reserved, and a bit insecure. He was extremely self-critical. Some might have thought he was snobbish, perhaps because he was not a good social butterfly and could not charm people at receptions. He felt uncomfortable in social situations. Many artists, though, fall into that category. Stephen was well-read, a fairly serious intellectual who did not indulge in small talk. He was more outgoing and relaxed when he was working on his Mercedes, riding his motorcycle or piloting a stunt airplane. He was much more comfortable socially when he was in a non-performing milieu. In January 1985, De Groot, who was an avid amateur pilot, nearly lost his life when he crashed his airplane in an Indian reservation near Phoenix, Arizona. While making a landing approach, De Groot lost control of the plane when a sudden gust of wind swept the plane off course and it tumbled to the ground. A series of coincidences followed that miraculously resulted in De Groot's survival. The man who spotted the crash happened to be driving a truck equipped with a radio, and an ambulance driving on the only highway in the area heard the emergency call. When the paramedics arrived, they found De Groot in a critical condition. He had no blood pressure and no detectable heartbeat. His aorta had been severed. He had broken his back, sustained a fracture to his skull, and was losing large amounts of blood fast. He was given a 2% chance of survival. We were just making a fairly ordinary landing approach when the plane dropped and we hit the ground. I don't remember that at all, which is why I still enjoy flying. We were in real desert country in the Gila River Indian Reservation, South of Phoenix. It was about quarter to ten in the morning. There was really nobody around, and there very rarely is anyone around. Yet we were found by... Um, 
one of the members of the tribe. My doctor tells me that I had essentially two fatal injuries. One was that my aorta was entirely severed, and the other was that I had a bad enough fracture to my skull, which of which the remnants are still visible. That air was coming into my brain cavity with every breath that I took. I don't think it would be wrong or far-fetched to say that that it was, you know, a matter of a minute or two, and I might have either died or been brain damaged. And that's one amazing thing. Another is that my back was broken, yet I am not paralyzed. Following his accident, Stephen's father, as well as his brothers, Philip and Oliver, visited him in the hospital. De Groot could not speak, but played the opening of Beethoven's Waldstein Sonata on Philip's arm. Miraculously, his hands were not injured in the accident. After extensive surgery and eight weeks in the hospital, De Groot was eventually able to resume his performances, and eventually his flying. Eight weeks after his accident, he managed to perform again in public, together with a Chilangirian quartet, and five months later, on the 13th of July 1985, he walked onto the stage of the Cape Town City Hall with a walking aid to give what Louis Heinemann at the time called an unforgettable performance of Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto. I started to play quite a lot, although I was still on crutches, and later when I got off the crutches, I was on a cane, and I stooped badly, and I looked awful, and I inflicted this frightful sight on audiences. However, despite his Lazarus-like recovery, de Groot still endured considerable pain, and had to return to hospital for a back operation that left him in a body cast for 10 months, practically immobile. That really was the lowest moment. When I got out and... I was relieved of my disability overnight. I didn't even have to go into physical therapy. The doctor said that normal activities would put me back into normal condition, which is exactly how it turned out. It felt as if I was uh, just a little bit too privileged. You know, I couldn't really in a way justify it. Why did I recover this well? How is it possible? What's the reason? They, they felt like guilty feelings. I don't think they were guilty feelings, but they felt that way. I felt slightly sad. When I was in my cast, I was able to play a little bit every day. I sort of genuflected. I sat on the left edge, and it was my left knee that was straight out, you know, held tight by the cast. And I was, because of the way I sat, I wasn't able to reach the pedal, and my left foot was behind me, and I couldn't really reach the pedal, so I played Bach a lot. but to play Bach. 
it's sort of a song of praise to me, a very, very pure message of goodness. De Groot's horrific accident, his miraculous recovery and long period of convalescence demanded superhuman willpower, determination and spiritual strength. One can only guess at the frustration, depression and despair, not to mention the pain that De Groot had to endure. Yet, as Richard Behrens, former head of the Department of Music at Stellenbosch University, would write in a letter to De Groot, You have emerged from this trial as a stronger, even more mature person, with an even deeper message in your music. The accident had not only changed the Groot on the outside, it also had a profound effect on him as a person and as a musician. I think I've, I'm more interested now in, in direct communication on every level, musical and human, I think. I do know that, that I hold a lot of things more dear than I ever even knew were valuable to me. One of those is my ability to play the piano. It's me making those sounds. I didn't write the music, but I, I after all, am making it a live vibration in the air. And my fingers have learnt all this over the last 33 years, and they're not damaged in the accident, and it was, that was a miracle, truly incredible. After his accident, even John Ardoin, the critic who had condemned De Groot following his Van Cliburn win for his common denominator approach to music, which is solid but never revelatory, had to concede that De Groot's playing had improved. After attending a 1987 performance of De Groot playing the Beethoven Fourth Piano Concerto, Ardoin wrote, Something has dramatically altered his playing. He called De Groot's performance sublime and wrote that this was a Beethoven Fourth of impetuosity and poetry, a suffusion of repose without a loss of flair and vigour.
An extract there from the first movement of Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4 in G Major, Opus 58, as performed by Stephen de Groot, with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra conducted by David de Villiers, in that live performance from 1988 recorded in the Cape Town City Hall. Chamber music had always played an integral part in de Groot's musical makeup, even from an early age. He performed regularly with the Giarneri String Quartet and the Chilangirian Quartet, in which his brother Philip was the cellist. Following his death, the respected music critic Edward Greenfield wrote in 1989, Stephen de Groot was above all a civilized pianist, one who after his spectacular win in the 1977 Van Cliburn competition refused to follow the conventional career of a keyboard virtuoso. He generally preferred to play with fellow musicians in chamber music, and that was when his inspiration flowed most freely in fresh, poetic playing. Op een lang duur van twaalf concerten duur hij vier jaar, omdat hij een eerste vierspelende operatie moest ondergaan. Dus hij was klavierkwartetten. Dat was bij mij lekker. Maar hij, natuurlijk moet mensen ervaren om kamermuziek te spelen, kunnen mensen gevraagd worden om te spelen. Following his death, the Van Cliburn Foundation named the Chamber Music Prize that is awarded during each Van Cliburn competition in memory of de Groot. In 1987, de Groot succeeded Lily Krauss as artist-in-residence, professor and head of piano at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. He was a demanding teacher, John Giordano recalled. He cared for his students and promoted and encouraged their careers. In 1989, de Groot and fellow pianist François de Toy accompanied the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra on a tour to Taiwan. De Toy remembers, The result of his airplane crash four years before had left virtually every bone in his body broken, and I know that when travelling on the bus he had to have a very upright seat as he couldn't really bend his back because of all the steel implants. When we reached Taiwan, he was very tired and basically took the first two days off, just sleeping in his hotel room. He played the Brahms B-flat concerto as well as the Rachmaninoff second, he left before the end of the tour as he had to get back to America for other concert appointments. That was the last time I saw him alive. During May of 1989, de Groot arrived in South Africa for appearances with the National Symphony Orchestra in Johannesburg. Shortly after his arrival, however, he was admitted to the intensive care unit of the Brenthurst Clinic in Johannesburg, where on the 22nd of May 1989, at the age of 36, he passed away. The reason for de Groot's death as reported by the New York Times, was inflammation of the liver. The world-bekend pianist Steven de Groot is gestrand in the back-eenheid of a clinic in Johannesburg. The 36-year-old Mr. De Groot had Sunday asemalingsproblemen entwickeld nadat hij reeds sedert 7 May behandeling for liver infection. The South African-born pianist was met vakantie in the land and so a paar uitvoeringsgee to hij ziek geworden. Hij was een resident-kunstenaar bij de Christian University in Fort Worth in de Amerikaanse staat Texas en zou die na week naar Amerika terugkeer om zijn concertverplichtingen daarna te komen. Esteemed South African composer and close friend of the de Groot family, Peter Klatso, delivered the tribute at de Groot's funeral, from which I'd like to read you the following extract. 
And now we are left with those rich and varied memories of his musicianship, his bravery, and his modest and lovable nature. But more than that, this is the time to think about the real meaning of Stephen's great gift and its significance for us. My beloved teacher Nadia Boulanger used to say to her classes, I try to impart the religion of music, not the career of music. We are called to serve the art. It is not there to serve us. Stephen understood that instinctively. When Stephen played, one had no impression at all of his own will or ego. They seemed to blend so perfectly with the wishes of the composer. But who could count the long and disciplined hours spent at the keyboard, honing his technique to perfection so that nothing should stand between us and the music? He was something special, and of course, he has remained something special, for us, for his students and colleagues, and for South Africa. To me, noted de Groot in an interview with Horowitz, what will never fade is the sense that I'm able to function as a successful musician without this compulsion to be famous, or to play a hundred concerts a season, which is a desperate and greedy thing to do. The urge to be popular and the urge to exist with integrity are opposing forces. To me, success is something you can look back on and be proud of on your deathbed. In my life, I want most to be able to find a way to play the way I want, noted de Groot. It would be nice to be appreciated, but it's just as important to find one's own ideas. I've always admired people who pursue their own goals, whether people like it or not. Stephen de Groot did exactly that. He dared to pursue his own path, to follow his own instincts. He did this fully, whether in his style of playing, as one commentator noted, the very opposite of the hammer and tong school, his choice of repertoire, or in his lifestyle, so very different from what others had expected of him. Before I leave you tonight, a special word of thanks to Peter Klatso, Alan Ripper, and Susan Wadsworth for their insights into De Groot and for the information which they made available to me. I'd also like to draw your attention to a detailed and thoroughly researched academic report by Cara Kleinons on the life and career of Stephen De Groot, which, with Cara's permission, I will make available on my website www.onandofftherecord.com for those who may be interested in reading a bit more about De Groot. And don't forget that you can download a copy of tonight's program from On and Off the Record and email me, Adrian Fuchs, at Adrian, that's A-D-R-I-A-N, at onandofftherecord.com should you have any comments or questions about tonight's program. Well, that brings to a close my final Fine Music Radio program for this year. I will, however, be back on the air on the 25th of January 2013 with a program on the exceptional Portuguese South African pianist Luis Magalhães. In the interim, please do visit onandofftherecord.com where you'll find some of my previous programs to download and enjoy. The last track that I'm going to be playing to you tonight is the third movement from Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, Opus 18, with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra conducted by David de Villiers and, of course, Stephen de Groot at the piano. From me, Adrian Fuchs, have a wonderful weekend. Good night. <laughs>